Welcome to Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. I'm Shannon Powell. The midterm elections are over and Democrats overperformed expectations nearly everywhere, except for here in New York. Governor Kathy Hochul fended off a Republican challenger, but Democrats running for Congress lost seats in House districts across the state. New York should have been the state that saved Democrats the House majority, but it could very well be the state that cost them control of Congress. What do Democrats in New York need to do next? Today, our guest is Jake Delamonte, partner at Mercury Public Affairs and a Democratic strategist. Thanks for joining us, Jake. Thank you for having me on again, Shannon. All right. Well, last time we talked, it was before the election. The election is over now. As we all know, Governor Hochul was reelected as governor, but she won by only roughly six points against an extremist Republican candidate in blue New York. Give me your big picture thought. Does the relatively close margin mean New York Democrats have a lot of work to do? Well, I'd say the short answer is yes. Um, Look, the sky didn't fall as much as people thought it was going to fall. Um, but the governor won with the margin that was the lowest Democratic margin in the last 16 years uh, for Democrats, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then what you had, in addition to the fact that she only won by six, I don't want to minimize her win. A win is a win, right? Right. Um, and it's, you know, it was a several hundred thousand vote difference, but, you know, that's over the course of about, you know, 5.7, 5.8 million votes. Um, but beyond the the um, the six point uh, victory was the fact that uh, the narrow victory, I should say, or by historical standards, is the fact that unfortunately you had a bunch of down ballot races that suffered the consequences of what seemingly was a weak Democratic Party in the state of New York compared to other states across the country. Right? You have you know obviously places like Pennsylvania where. They may even be on the verge of flipping the state house representatives for the first time in a very long time. Uh, you had you had local and state level gains in places like Utah, mm-hmm. but in New York, you know, which is thought of as a very deep blue state, we had losses at the congressional and state senate and state assembly levels. You know, we lost the, the majority of the Democratic seats that we lost were in the city or in the metro areas. So we lost, you know, two congressional seats. Um, obviously, these are new district lines, and they are not as favorable as they should have been had redistricting ended up in a different place. Um, but you lost two congressional districts on Long Island. Obviously, Sean Patrick Maloney lost his seat. Um, you know, another four or five state Senate seats that have been held by Democrats on Long Island. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Democratic held Senate seat in Rockland County, uh, and then a handful of state assembly members in, in Brooklyn in southern Brooklyn, which is more conservative and has a, a large populations of voters who have voted Republican, even though they're usually registered as Democrats. Point being that, um, to answer your question, yeah, the Democratic Party in New York does have a lot of uh, work it needs to do. And a lot of that is tied into um, the discussion around crime. And the Democrats have been on the defensive on crime for the last several years, really since they passed criminal justice reform in 2019. And they rolled it back a little bit to make it, in in my estimation and the estimation of many people, Democrats included, a little bit more reasonable, but they haven't gone far enough. And and the party suffered those consequences on election night. 
So Jake, tell me, you know, Governor Hochul won roughly 60% of the vote in the city in Westchester. They really were her firewalls. Um, a write-up today in the New York Post, actually of all places, showed that Black voters in the city are the ones who propelled her to victory. How do you think she was able to hold on to her base of support as her support was eroding elsewhere? Sure. Well, look, you know, she, she won with 60% in Westchester County. That's still about six points lower than Cuomo did four years ago, right? And that's not, that's a pretty sizable difference, 60% versus 66%. Mm -hmm. um, the Democratic coalition more and more is, you have African-Americans, you still have pockets of other minority voters, although you, everyone's seen the news now, you know, People are waking up to the fact that the Hispanic vote, quote unquote, is not a monolithic vote. It's very diverse. It's it's basically as diverse as the white vote is. Mm -hmm. You have the Asian vote that had been trending Democratic, which is now seeing a little bit of that cut away. Uh, but you've had basically in a very reliable segment of the population, African-American vote. And more and more now you have white college educated people. And in a place like Westchester, it's a lot of white people. And it's a lot of college educated people. So you have, you know, African-Americans in, in predominantly in southern parts of the county in Yonkers and Mount Vernon, et cetera, and New Rochelle. And then, you know, and some of them are college educated for sure. And then you have a bunch of co college educated voters throughout the county. So just the socioeconomics of that county, you know, and and now the the racial diversity and the ethnic diversity that the county didn't have, say, certainly not 20 years ago, but not even 10 years ago, that that would are the two factors I would attribute to how she got 60 percent. But again, that's it's good, but it's an underperformance of where we were just four years ago. So there's still work to be done there. I want to talk about Long Island now, because Long Island, as opposed to Westchester, which Westchester you know, it was blue. Uh, Kathy got a greater percentage of the vote in Westchester than Zeldin did in Suffolk County, for example. But Long Island continued to trend Republican in this election. You know, Kathy was defeated on Zeldin's home turf and Republicans now control all of the congressional seats on Long Island for the first time since 1994. Turnout there was also massive. Is Long Island a lost cause for Democrats? I don't think it's a lost cause. Uh, it has historically been much tougher turf than, let's say, Westchester. I mean, if you look at the last, I don't want to go back too far back because I, I don't I don't have those comparisons handy. But if you look just in the last maybe 15, 20 years or so, um, Westchester has obviously there have been Republicans elected to office there at the countywide level and, and more locally. But. Nassau and Suffolk counties have had much more, they've been much more of swing areas than Westchester County. And, you know, just look at last cycle, right, the 2021 elections, right? Democrats lost basically all the contested seats in Nassau County for the county and the big towns, town offices. Um, there was a special election for the state assembly that they lost. There's, it's been trending really in the Trump years more Republican. That's not to say that the Democrats don't still win certain seats there not on the local level, um, but it's getting it's been a tough several years. But the county itself has had many years of Democrats, you know, uh, winning office. You had Democratic county executive there for 
eight years. Mary Tom Swazi, when he Tom Swazi went on to win several terms in the House. Kathy Rice was uh, was a Democratic DA before Congress member. Uh, we've had Democrats in the state Senate for a number of years in the last 15 years there. Uh, it's just clearly an area that where the national when the national trends don't favor the party and the party um, that's that's in power, they get thrown out. Suffolk County is a little bit different, uh, but also has a lot of those dynamics. So I wouldn't I wouldn't give up on Nassau and Suffolk counties. I think it just you need the right national environment and the president with the 40% approval rating where you have a lot of folks who commute to the city or even people who don't, right? Who think about the city as like this crime ridden place, mm -hmm. right? And you're now just outside of the city. We don't want that coming to your neighborhood. That's gonna be manifested in the way that you vote. Um, but I think, you know, if fast forward two years from now, a Republican wins the White House and, and folks, Long Island aren't seeing what they want to see out of Washington, then you can very well have a, another blue wave. So it's tougher turf, but it's winnable. It's been proven to be winnable. And by the way, in, in Suffolk County, you know, even though the last couple of years have been tough for uh, most candidates on Long Island, Suffolk County, you have a Democratic uh, uh, sheriff elected out there, mm. right? So it's it's a mix. It's hit or miss. What do you think can be done in, in between now and the the presidential year? I mean, if you were if you were if you were, you know, advising somebody on Long Island, what would you say? What would be your advice? If you're a Democrat running in on a place like Long Island, where you know you cannot really run, it's like any marginal suburban district across America. If you're going to run as a Democrat, run as a as a sensible Democrat who is focused on issues that matter to voters and meet the voters where they are. Don't focus so much on what the left flank of the party is ranting and raving about on Twitter. That's not helpful. There are factors outside of your control, right? You can be as, as you know, anti-bail reform as possible, but if the party has, you know, basically, you know, put that policy into place and you can't do anything about it, then you're kind of on the defense. But there are things you can do. You can be a candidate that detaches yourself from some of the more unpopular tenets of, of the party. And the people driving those unpopular positions are largely people in safe blue districts, deep, deep, deep blue districts where, you know, you could put, you know, Mickey Mouse on the ballot as a Democrat and Mickey Mouse would win. So if Mickey Mouse was conducting an autopsy <laughs> on this election, no, seriously, if we're going to, like, let's say, conduct an autopsy on this election, what should we be looking at and what kind of questions should we be asking? Why didn't we get wiser on criminal justice reform sooner? I mean, look, a lot of the if you were a Democrat running, let's say, in a place like Westchester, mm -hmm. right, you were pro-choice, Right. And right. so you were on the side of the vast majority of Americans, period, regardless of party affiliation, right? Right. Okay. If you were a little bit wise to it in the last month of the election, you were probably talking about the economy, cost of living, affordability, taxes, inflation, et cetera, things like that, right? Right. The one place where, and there have been warning signs and there have been people 
involved in the process, consultants, other elected officials, et cetera, who have been who are, were raising red flags here, but the party as a whole should have been a little bit wiser on the criminal justice piece. And you know, as we discussed earlier, the state did undo some of the bail-related changes they made in 2019. They 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 undid some of them in this last legislative session, but they didn't go far enough. They never recaptured the narrative on crime. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, you know, a lot of a lot of Democrats, particularly on the far left of the spectrum, want to sit and debate, well, crime rates actually aren't higher in these several categories than they were, you know, over the last 20 years, or crime is actually rising everywhere, regardless of if it's a blue or red area. And that's all true. But the problem is, it's politics, it's campaigns, perception is reality. You know, you can't sit there. Reality, that's one of my favorite. Yeah, you can't sit there and have like a in-depth 20-minute discussion, you know, anywhere about this. People have very limited bandwidth and no attention span. And if you're a canvasser, by the way, what are you going to do? You're not going to someone's source to actually know that crime isn't going up. Right. Well, like that person, even though, again, you may be running the facts, the voter is going to think you're, you are so out of touch with reality. And so the party, the party should have done a better job way sooner beating back the worst of the worst attacks in crime. The Republicans would still have used it. I mean, the Republicans, particularly on Long Island, what they always do, mm-hmm. they always say, you know, the, the mayor of New York City is the boogeyman, and whatever's happening there is going to come to Nassau County. They've been running that playbook for years. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But that's what we should have done better. We should have inoculated ourselves and then pivoted, and we never did that. Right. Because I mean, this, these are very emotional things for people. So like yeah. you said, somebody's knocking on the door and if I feel unsafe, statistics aren't going to necessarily change my mind. Again, it's trying to get to those arguments that resonate on an emotional level, not, not, you know, more, more how you feel versus necessarily more than, you know, how you sit down and break down statistics and whatnot. I, I want to take a moment just to talk a little bit about structure. And if you have any thoughts on how can and should a better state party be structured, you know, what capacities might we lack? What should we be doing to keep our voters engaged when everybody's not in panic mode? You know, kind of give me some of your thoughts on what you think would be helpful when it comes to like cohesiveness and strategy. Sure. So there's been a lot of folks who have criticized the state party leadership and right, have called for the chairman to resign. Um, at the staff level, there's a bunch of people who work for the state party who work very hard and do a good job uh, what they do. But what seems to be the case is that, and this happens anywhere really where one party rule is not, at least at a statewide level, seriously challenged on a regular basis, right? Organizations tend to grow a little sclerotic. Mm-hmm. And because you're never truly, yeah, yes, I mean, over the years, we've had very competitive contests for the state senator for Congress. But generally speaking, the majority of the state population wise, the majority of the time has been Democratic. So organizations get lazy. That happens at the very local level. It happens statewide. And, you know, that's why you see sometimes in, in places, states where, you know, either, the, the, you know, the party out of control is out of control or shares control every other cycle they have some of the most aggressive, active party organizations, right? 
because mm -hmm. everyone always feels a sense of urgency about it. I mean, what the state party could do is certainly a better job in terms of setting up an organizational structure. Now, the reality is this, though, right? There's a tremendous amount of infrastructure out there in any campaign that is not really the state apparatus or the county apparatus, right? I mean, well-funded campaigns come in, they have professional consultants, they set up shop, they do their own thing, right? Yes, could they use state party resources, money, bodies? Sure. The reality is a lot of those campaigns do their own thing. You have the party committees at the state level. You have the Democratic Assembly Campaign Committee. They have their resources, money, and consultants, and they put in, you know, and their labor union connections on behalf of their candidates. The, the Democratic State Senate Committee does the same thing. The DCCC does their thing, right? So you have all these layers of organizations. It's not as if there's now a whole new set of resources that can be tapped when you have all these other entities vying for the same dollars and bodies. However, you could do a better job coordinating all of these different entities and resources. And you could set up an actual organization system, right? An organizing system, rather. So, like, you know, each county has is responsible for X amount of organizers. X amount of contacts, and there is a coherent and organized strategy that comes from the top down and says, you know, <clears throat> Westchester County is responsible for X. And in Westchester, there's some lead organizers who are not just responsible for one campaign, but the whole slate, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very tough thing to build, and it's an even tougher thing to maintain. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is New York, right? It's this is like the capital of the world. Our Democratic Party should be, you know, very sophisticated, technologically advanced and strategically advanced. And it doesn't particularly seem to be that that's been the priority. And again, because Democrats have won at the state level for the last 16 years at this point, it's the state party has always kind of been basically a tool of the governor to to launch certain initiatives. But beyond that, it hasn't really been a tool to help other candidates run for other offices. So it needs to be more robust and more full-time and more uh, not just reactive. <laughs> it yeah. needs to be ongoing, yes. So create, so. An create a structure where you can have actual an actual organizing army out there. You know, if you remember, Obama did this after 08, uh, he had OFA, mm -hmm. and OFA basically, you know, kind of took over for state parties in certain areas, which in, in hindsight was not a good thing. Huh. Like, you, we should have been building up our state apparatus. And, and really, honestly, it's this is, it's like anything else in politics, you know, you reap what you sow. Yeah. Right. The actions that the results we're seeing now are not necessarily the actions that have just taken place. They're, they're consequences of actions that have taken place over years. Right. And we, you know, we have had a somewhat weak, a weak party infrastructure here a long time. Look, the county levels, the county levels have gone from be, being very active, important um, entities to basically being distractions or sideshows. In many, many places, not all, but many places. Right. So in two years, Jake, we've got the presidential and almost guaranteed higher turnout. Putting on your consulting hat, 
what should we be doing to sweep the field then? Because the work starts now as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, the work does start now. Um, good candidate recruitment where we have to go retake seats, right? Um, that's certainly important. What this, this, it's always hard to draw conclusions from one election and then apply them to, to other elections. But one thing we saw across the country was that candidate quality did matter, right? Voters split tickets in a number of places in Nevada and Pennsylvania and Arizona. Um, you know, people were paying attention to some of the things candidates were saying, namely, oh, this person's a lunatic. We're not going to vote for them, right? Uh, you had a lot of Republicans, for instance, who voted for Shapiro for governor of Pennsylvania, um, you know, who just could not pull the lever for Mastriano, but then they voted for Oz, right? Um, so candidate recruitment is the first thing. You need the candidates who match the voters best, right? And also who can do everything else you need to do and run a campaign. You have to raise requisite money. You have to treat it like a full-time job, et cetera. The second thing is setting up your organizing infrastructure. And that is the work that kind of starts now. And it's tough to do that when people are tired just from this election cycle, right? Maybe give them the holidays and get into early next year, right? But, um, you know, it's building the infrastructure. If it's a, you know, if it's a town committee, it's making sure that you have the people involved that are going to do the hard work of the petitioning and the volunteering and the door knocking, et cetera. It's having that stuff into place. So by 2024, Right. You have people who know what they're doing, who are enthused, who get the picture. Right. Those elements would be very important to holding seats and winning some seats. And, and even next year, you know, on the more local level. Right. You know, there's we have state legis in, in Westchester, the state legislative elections and there's other there's municipal elections. Right. All these all these strategies apply to those races as well. Um, and it's not just about focusing on a congressional election or president, right? There's all these, it's, it's, we now know, voters know, all these levels matter. State legislatures, which were absent from public discussion for many, many, many years, all of a sudden, you know, people started to talk about them because we just realized just how important they are, you know, in terms of protecting democratic initiatives, meaning, meaning pro-democracy initiatives, uh, pro-choice, right? You know, all levels of government are important. People need to be on top of that. And, and just a final question. Do you think that, too, in the presidential year, it's going to be more um, more, um, more beneficial to these congressional candidates in these competitive, you know, in these competitive areas? Again, because of redistricting, I think this last cycle, New York had the largest number of competitive House seats anywhere in the nation. Those competitive seats are baked in because of redistricting. So New York is going to be a battleground. I mean, looking looking forward, are, are, are these candidates and you think these races going to be different, you know, in a presidential year? I mean, are you more hopeful that we can have success? I would like your final thought on that. Yeah, I mean, look, presidential years tend to help Democrats a little bit more because we have a history as a party of our voters not showing up in midterms, but that's been put on its head a little bit the last couple cycles, including this year. And um, what I'd say is this, depending on how the next two years go, right, in Washington and locally, that'll tell us what happens in 2024. I think it's too early to tell. I do think you have a couple of Republicans, particularly on Long Island, who just won those seats, who their party may wind up putting them in tough positions that won't be particularly popular at home, 
but they'll have to go along with their conference. Uh, and then they'll have to go defend those positions, you know, in November of 2024. And I could very easily see those seats or at least one of them flipping back. I, I don't think we're going to have, I don't think all of those seats are going to be held by Republicans for very long. Let's hope not. Um, Jake, any final thought? Don't stop volunteering. Get out there, knock on doors. The organizing doesn't stop. And you see what happens when there's a lack of organizing. That's true. You can take a break for the holidays and after that, back to work. Well, I mean, people are excited, though. I must say that the activists are already, you know, gearing up for Georgia. They're, you know, the writing postcards, text banking, phone banking. A couple of people have uh, road trips. Um, you know, scheduled down there. So I think it's great. So, you know, I, an exciting, you know, an exciting race will get people going and, but sure. the organizing that goes into it in the, you know, off cycle is, is extremely important. So I'm really glad that you talked a little bit more about that. Jake, thank you so much for joining us again. My pleasure. Thank you, Shannon. And hopefully we'll see you or talk to you again sometime in the future. Definitely. Thanks for listening to Indivisible Westchester, the podcast. I'm Shannon Powell. There's a U.S. Senate runoff in Georgia on December 6th. You can find actions to help get out the vote in Georgia on our website at indivisiblewestchester.org.